Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Policy Punchline, where we record scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. Um, today, we have a little bit uh, something different that we're used to. Uh, today, we have the honor of interviewing Samuel George. Um, Samuel George is a documentary filmmaker and analyst for the uh, Bertelsmann Foundation. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, you did. You nailed it. All right. Oh, I'm proud of that. Uh, with a particular focus on the uh, intersection of economics, politics, the digital revolution, and daily life, um, Samuel's on-the-ground documentaries take him around the world. Um, he travels to places like India, Mexico, and Turkey, uh, for example. Um, his documentaries have garnered over a million views online, and uh, they shed the live shed light on the lives that are affected by public policy. Um, welcome, Samuel. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So I guess we'll just get started off since uh, on our podcast, we don't usually uh, interview uh, documentary filmmakers. Um, I just wanted to start off by asking what drew you towards making documentaries in the first place? Basically what led you down this path? Yeah, that's a funny question. I mean, there's so many different things. Some of them are very almost kind of superficial sounding. Like I got a master's degree uh, from the Johns Hopkins Uni University uh, School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, which is a global policy school. I was in Latin America. My goal is I really wanted to travel to other countries and work in other countries and be on the ground, you know, there, being there. And then I got a policy job and I realized that a lot of the writing could be done from Washington. <laughs> if you were going to write, you were you could just pick up the phone and call somebody or Skype somebody or just do the research here. So that kind of stymied my plan of being yeah. on the ground meeting people. And so sort of a workaround was this idea of starting to incorporate film, because if you were going to record something, well, heck, you got to be there. Um, that's sort of a flippant answer. I mean, I think that uh, just that this idea to really show and not tell is something I really believe in. I mean, that goes back to something like my English teacher would say in sixth or seventh grade, but I really believe it. And I think that, you know, so much of the problems we get into today in the international theater, but also the national theater are based on like an inability to understand what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. And I think that documentary film has this power, really all kinds of film, has this power of helping you understand. And, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a, a clean switch from policy to documentaries. It was a long path because it's an extremely difficult thing, documentary film. And it take it just you have to learn, and the only the best way to learn is by making mistakes, and it takes a long time to make those mistakes and learn from them. But for me, the way it started was filming interviews. That I would say, okay, well, um, you know, rather than interviewing these ten policymakers and writing a policy report, I will film them and make interview videos. So that that got my trick of getting to go to the region and be there, and then. You know, you would just have these talking heads, you know, these interview videos. And I started making interview videos. And then I would start to do little things like when I would leave, let's say I was in Argentina and I would leave the policy interview and you see somebody on the street, you know, a, a taxi driver in Argentina or a fruit vendor in Brazil or somebody selling newspapers in Colombia. You say, well, hey, sir, I, you know, I just had a 30 minute conversation with this policymaker about 
you know, this new policy. What do you think about it? And then we started to get those videos and the, the bosses here at Bertelsmann Foundation were like, hey, those are, those are kind of cool. You know, maybe we could incorporate more of that. And that got us into mixing the two, um, taking your policy quotes, taking your man on the street quotes, and then taking like some images of the city and mixing those in. And suddenly before you even know what you're doing, you're starting down a path towards documentary film. So that's a long and winding answer, but um, the truth is it was a long and winding process. Yeah, no, you, in your answer, it, it sounded a lot as to like your answer about how wide, what documentaries can offer that maybe a traditional report wouldn't be able to offer. Um, it actually reminds me a lot about why I like podcasts in general, like this more long form, like actually being able to see the person and actually them being able to articulate and specifically in the realm of policy, where we're used to like the media having like, all right, soundbite, soundbite, soundbite. Yeah. Here right. we go. Like you don't get you don't get an actual glimpse as to what the policy that a certain person is advocating for. Like one thing I remember specifically is that there were a lot of complaints about the debates in this last election. Mm -hmm. That it was a lot of snippets. Like there was a lot, there was like a thing going around about getting Trump on the Joe Rogan podcast for a little bit and having right. the debates there. Right. And I think that 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 goes so that people realize that they're not getting this. Uh, like they're so used to these these people just saying like little bitty policies you're not able right. to get the full story and I think right. documentaries and podcasts have a sort of relation in that sense um yeah so I, I guess completely we, agree yeah. it's ridiculous this kind of debate format where you give somebody like 15 seconds to get yeah. their health care plan and you know it's no it's no wonder that the entire policy debate in the United States is been reduced to these sound bites. And I think the same thing happens on Twitter. It's like, give me your healthcare plan in 280 characters or whatever the limit yeah. is now on Twitter. It's it's this it's this inability to add depth to the conversation. I think it really hurts us. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess we can go ahead and go into uh, one of your more recent uh, documentaries, uh, The Go-Go City, Displacement and Protests in Washington, DC. Um, so for those who haven't watched it, the documentary Go-Go City, it dives into the rich tapestry of Washington's culture and sound. Um, and it also goes into depth with some of the forces uh, of economic and cultural gentrification that have happened in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, the film uh, beautifully interweaves uh, scenes of protest as displaced communities rally around the city's beloved Go-Go music to retake their streets. Um, First off, I guess we could go uh, in depth into this because I have no relation to DC at all. So when I heard Go Go City, I was like, what's Go Go? I, I don't know what Go Go is. So I guess first off, could we start off by just asking you like, what is Go Go music? And yeah. and I guess as a follow-up as well is like, what drew you to making a documentary on Go Go music in general? Like what's your, what's your connection there? Because I, I know that you didn't initially intend to actually cover the Black Lives Matter protests in DC. So that wasn't original intention, of course, because they hadn't happened yet when you started the project. Um, but it'd be interesting to know what drew you to even starting a documentary about Go Go music in general. I think that'd be really interesting for us to learn about. Yeah, well, that is an excellent series of questions. And I'm going to see if I can get through them all. I mean, first sure. of all, what is go-go music? Go-go music is something very, very special. And, uh, you know, for people that don't know what it is, you know, they hear go-go music. And I think sometimes they associate it with a specific kind of like dance club that I guess in Europe, it has that meaning or something. Yeah. But 
that's not what go-go music is. Go-go music is a specific kind of funk music that grew out of Washington DC's African-American community in the mid to late 1970s and just caught on. And when I say funk music, it is extremely funky, but it's also very unique. It's not like a, a four minute song and then you stop and then another four minute song that sounds a little bit different and then you stop. It's this really engaging beat that just starts and goes for about 50 minutes at least consecutively. And the song changes over that beat, but the beat doesn't change. So it almost has this element of a drum circle that's brought into it, uh, but it's a very specific kind of beat. And it's just some of the most powerful music I've ever heard in my life. I absolutely love it. Um, and it's this, and so do people in Washington. Uh, it's been beloved for decades now, and it's never really made it out of Washington, but people love it the way they love you know, the food from their neighborhood that they grew up in, or the, it's very much part of what they say here is it's in your DNA. Um, so the question of why I wanted to do the documentary and how I got into GoGo and, and all this, it's all kind of interrelated because, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I moved to Washington. I lived here for a decade now. Uh, one thing I really care a lot about is where I am. You know, I like to know the history of where I am. I like to feel the history around me. I'm from Philadelphia, which is one of the oldest cities in the United States. I love Latin American cities that have centuries of history. I've lived in Italy and lived in Spain and just love soaking in this, what brought us to this point. That connection to the past is very profound for me. And when I moved to Washington in 2010, I was very disappointed because I felt like there was none of that. It felt like the city had all been built five years ago. You know, there were all these high rise luxury apartments and brand new restaurants, boutique restaurants with flashy overpriced menus that look like they've been, you know, some made from in New York City and imported here. And I just couldn't find that local culture. And it made me almost, it turned me off to Washington initially as if that didn't exist. Then I discovered go-go music. It took a while and most, so most people that, so, so, the, so that's the thing that's tied into that feeling. Where's that feeling coming from? That Washington has just undergone this exceptional period of gentrification. Just the, the whitewashing of a longstanding and historic city that was also kind of falling apart, you know, it was underinvested in for decades and a lot of the infrastructure was decaying, has just been replaced. And so a lot of those people that have moved in, you know, young professionals that want to live in the city, people like me, honestly, you know, I was going to school, then I had this job writing policy about Latin America, just with no sense of what this city was that came before them. And when I discovered go-go music, not only did I find something new that I loved, but it was this key to show me that there was a profound and historic community here. There was an ongoing culture of great depth and breadth and that it was just being papered over. Um, and so really it was go-go music that changed my feeling about Washington. Um, 
Shall I keep going? I don't know oh, if this please. is okay. Oh, please. Yes, of course. Because we're still talking. I've only got to like 2013, 2014. That's when I started to <laughs> discover go-go music. And, um, you know, for years, I was just a fan, you know, it had nothing to do with professionalness. And I think that that was important because I built, it takes a long time to build connections in the, in that world. But I think people saw that I wasn't there to take, you know, I was there to participate and enjoy, you know, I just loved it. I would go on a week. Like a, so, so the way go-go works is a lot of bands. And this is why the go-go community in part has been crushed by the Corona period. Go-go is best experienced live. And even the, if you want to listen to go-go, the best things to listen to are live recordings of good shows. And most bands will have like a weekly residency meaning they'll play every Wednesday at the meeting place or every Saturday night at Aqua Club. Um, and the same people come every week, like going to see the local football team. Like there's fans of these bands, which are very big, by the way. A go-go band will often have over 10 people on stage, you know, like three percussionists and two keyboards and a singer and a rapper and a lead mic, lead talk. A guy that's basically his job is just to get people excited. Um, and I would just go. And I would bring different people that had never experienced it before. And it was just something that I really enjoyed. Um, and meanwhile, my work was kind of taking a turn that initially my documentaries were very international, starting in Latin America, but then as you say, doing work in Turkey, doing work in India, Latvia, Italy, like we were going around the world and doing these things. And as it was progressing, it was like almost like I was coming closer and closer to home. I started doing projects in the United States. We did one in West Virginia. Then um, in 2018, was it 2018? No, 2019, we did a long form project in Florida. And it's like, we're slowly getting closer. And the challenge was, is I was getting more into these films from artistic potential. You start to realize how valuable time on the ground is. Because, you know, like if let's say, so we did a Latvia um, election documentary, which I'm very proud of. I, I, I really like that film, you know, and but we had what, like three weeks on the ground there. And so that's sort of a hit or miss. You have three weeks, you make the most of it. But if you're closer to home, because it's so much money, right? You got to fly out there. You got to stay in a hotel. You got to you don't speak the language. So you need somebody that can roll with you to help you know what's going on. But I started to realize that, hey, you know, if I do something in West Virginia, that plane ticket's cheaper, you know, the timing is cheaper. I can go more often. And in Florida as well, you know, I can really do like that Florida we filmed over the course of the year. But even so, you know, you're spending money, your meals and all that. So I was like, if I could do something in Washington, I could work all the time for the duration of the project and keep my budget way, way down. So that was sort of a technical side of it. But then there was always this thing that I'd love to talk about GoGo. Now, I think it would be cool to do a full-on documentary just about GoGo. But there were a couple problems with that. For one, it's already been done and it's already been done quite well. In fact, um, there's one that just came out last year. Uh, the Beat Goes On, I believe it's called. That's you know really covering the development of GoGo music. Then secondly, you know, we are a nonprofit institution, the Bertelsmann Foundation, and we do policy, economic, transatlantic issues. We don't make music documentaries. So I couldn't just pitch 
a go-go film, which is actually, like I say, for the better because it gave us a chance to be more unique. Um, so I think that the idea was to combine this go to on the one hand cover that gent that whitewashing of Washington DC that had struck me so much the kind of complete painting over this historic city and then to use go-go to show what that culture actually is that's being lost because there's this whole thing about go-go being pushed out of the city and it's much tougher to find than it used to be so that was the pitch that I got approved to say let's talk about gentrification and I said I want to look at it in three ways I want to look at it in terms of housing. I want to look at it in terms of small business. And I want to look at it in terms of um, culture. And the, when I talk about culture, I, I want to focus on go-go music. And that's what we got approved. Um, and I think it's important to say that those aren't the only forms of gentrification. And the documentary doesn't claim to be comprehensive. It's not. But those are the ones that we focused on because they're so self-reinforcing, those three mechanisms of gentrification, that when people start having to move out because they can't afford the rent or they can't pay the property tax, the people that come in aren't going to those local businesses. You know, they're not going, in, there's a fish shack, like a fish, a small hole in the wall fish store that was just beloved, but people weren't going there. The people coming in wanted those fancy boutique restaurants. So then the local restaurant goes out. And then, you know, there's, there's, uh, the clubs want to cater to a younger, uh, whiter audience, and they're not booking the go-go artists. And more and more, the go-go artists are being pushed out of the city. So the three of them are all kind of pushing on each other. And that was sort of a knot that I wanted to untangle a little bit in the documentary. That was the goal. And then, as you say, life life comes at you quick. Yeah. In terms of 20, <laughs> 2020, was nobody could have planned for just about anything that happened in 2020. I, I know Annie wants to follow up with a question, but since you just mentioned the chaos that is 2020, um, how did it come about with a project that uh, was like the process of changing course, I guess, when it comes to like covering these protests more? Because a lot of the times these transitions were very sudden. Like we were talking about go-go and then yeah, bam, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where we're dealing with the protests. Was that... Right. Uh, was that something that just like slowly happened? Because I think like you mentioned in an article that you just kept recording. Right. It was happening. Right. Um, so then, so, mm -hmm. go ahead. No, I'm uh, sorry to interrupt. I get real excited talking. About no, 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 things. please, please. That's why you're here. Um, <laughs> so the first thing that happened was COVID and that basically shut down production, right? There was no, there was no more work on the documentary. And so it's really, really interesting for me is to go back and look at the things that clearly happened before the COVID pandemic, you know, concerts, go-go concerts that we filmed, uh, like people packed into that, that uh, fish restaurant on its final days. But production basically stopped with no clear idea of how we were gonna pick it back up. And then you had the murder of George Floyd and, um, it was basically, you know, it was so funny. Well, that's not funny. It was interesting because Washington had been silent. And I bet a lot of the world was kind of like this. It was so eerie. The streets were empty. You know, there was a quiet that had come over the city. And this was just completely shattered um, by, the, by the murder of George Floyd. It just penetrated that quiet. And suddenly the streets were filled with people and protest. Um, 
and at first, yeah, I mean, I, I thought this could be tangentially related to what I'm doing because there is a clear uh, racial element to the gentrification in Washington, DC and the Black Lives Matter protests were triggered by systemic injustice and racism and policing. So I wasn't quite sure, but something was happening. And initially I started recording. Now, what the film ultimately is suggesting is that, okay, so yes, the protests were triggered by systemic injustice and racism in policing and criminal justice, but they expand to include, I think, broader systemic racism in the institutions of the United States of America. Systemic racism in healthcare, systemic racism in education, systemic racism in employment. And I think that that systemic racism is expressed in different ways in different parts of the country. And one way that it is expressed in Washington, DC, where it exists is in this process of gentrification. In this, because, and that's why the movie sets up initially by showing what Washington was, which was Chocolate City. Washington, once upon a time, was a touchstone of Black culture in the United States of America. And that didn't just mean that it had a large African American population. It meant that it had a majority African American population, but it also had an upper class, a middle class, a working class, a political class, an artistic class. It was known as Black Broadway. This was really important community. And those people have been pushed out of the city in many cases. And that was an example of a systemic racism played out in Washington. And then not only that, the interesting thing was these protests were bringing people back to the streets. So people were coming back to the very places that they had been pushed off of. And that's sort of where the documentary starts to make the connection between something, a project that was initially about gentrification and ultimately expanded to include the protests. But then something that I couldn't have expected happened, but was, I, I feel extremely poetic. And that is go-go music became a leading force of these protests. What happened was they started uh, getting these large trucks that would have entire bands on the back and the bands would play these massive protests that would go straight to the White House, just with thousands of people that came because, you know, the music is such a, a uniter of, of the community in Washington. Um, and so to be able to film the use of the culture specifically for this, to stand up against that injustice and to bring people back to the streets, to bring Gogo back to the city with this political power, I thought really, brings it full circle. And so you're right, the film has these jarring jumps in the beginning, because you, I'm trying to give some of that history. What is go-go music? So you go from a protest scene to exactly early in the film to answering your question, hopefully for people who watched of what is go-go music. But then as the film progresses, those, that kind of present day and historic slowly catch up to each other. And the goal is, by the end, it comes full circle. Yeah, for sure. Um, I got, we, you, we both got so excited at the start of this podcast and I forgot to introduce myself and Annie. <laughs> um, yeah, just really quickly. Um, my name is Kenneth and I'm a junior at Princeton University and uh, my partner is Annie and she can introduce herself. Yeah, I'm Annie. I'm a freshman and um, 
yeah, no, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> um, so just to follow up with um, what you said, Mr. George, about sort of how you, when you were filming, you sort of didn't really plan for um, Gogo to be like part of the protest that happened um, this year. So I was just wondering, could you kind of go into your production process a little bit more? Like, do you usually sort of just film things um, as you go along and then try to like put it together? Or do you try to sort of like create a certain narrative? That is an excellent question because I was just kind of coming to that realization myself, even before you asked the question that it was kind of easier for me to make that change because I don't know what I'm going to film when I go into a project. And that can sometimes be very frustrating for, for example, my boss, you know, that people would love to know, these are the things that this film will cover. This is the date that it will be done. But I just personally, I don't feel that that's how documentaries should be done. You know, or some documentaries might want to have that, but I don't go into these films, you know, especially because I'm almost always working in cultures and situations and often countries outside of my own that I should go in with, this is what I'm going to say. This is my argument. I'm going to find people to make that argument. This is going to be scene one, then I'm going to get this in scene two. I never have that. So in every kind of documentary, I kind of find out what it's about as I go, you know? And then once you start to realize by the end, God, you know what I have? You start to look back at the older footage and see that it's been showing that all along, you know? And I think that that's, I think there's many different kinds of documentary films out there. And the kind that I'm trying to make are these sort of observational pieces where, uh, you know, I don't have like an ax to grind I don't have something I'm trying to prove to you. I'm trying to bring the honesty of the situation and there's downsides to that. But one upside is you can very easily pivot as the situation develops. So this was a pretty massive pivot and unexpected one. But my, my working flow and my working style, you know what it also meant was, okay, we don't make endless documentaries. This one was 50 minutes and it's probably kind of on the long side for us. But if you suddenly have, if I have a general plan of what I'm going to talk about for 50, or what I'm going to show for 50 minutes, but then if all of a sudden 20 of those minutes or 15 of those minutes are going to be protest and you've just cut your room to talk about the other things by 15 minutes, 20 minutes. So um, some things were filmed that I think are, are good stuff that didn't go into the documentary. I mean, one thing about this film is because like I said, I was in Washington, so I could just film and film and film. There's a huge amount of content that I created and the, most of it is not in the documentary. And I hope to do something with it someday because I think it's just valuable for the city of Washington. And I'll give you an example. Um, one thing that's a major part of the gentrification story is the consistent decline and decrease of public and affordable housing options. Um, and that's happening throughout the city. And one way to talk about that is there was this Berry Farms public housing that's very famous in Washington because it's been so like important to the culture for a long time. So many people lived there. Uh, you know, it had decades and decades of life in Berry Farms. And Berry Farms has been slowly and consistently shut down to the point where now it's completely emptied out and being bulldozed. And 
that's kind of indicative of what's happening in the city. And one thing I did is I went with people that used to live in Berry Farms and were displaced from Berry Farms. We went back there and just kind of walked the streets, which are now, it's just construction workers knocking it over and building up development. And they just talked about what they remembered from it and, um, you know, how life has been difficult following the displacement. And those are, I think, of historic value you know, but it didn't, there was no place for it in the documentary in this kind of format. So uh, what, the, what, what the pivot did was kind of force other changes in terms of timing, but, you know. So obviously the documentary had a lot of really amazing footage, um, but we're just curious about, like you said, um, your document sort of pivoted its focus um, like in the production process. We're just wondering what are some things that were left out of the documentary? Like, do you show everything that you record um, or like, how do you try to sort of like select what, to, what goes in and what doesn't go in? Right. It's tough. It's tough. I mean, I filmed five terabytes for this documentary, which is, I mean, I don't know if people, it's a lot. Before I got into film, I didn't really know this kind of things, but that's a lot of, that's a lot. To, to give you an example, the final, a terabyte, right, is a thousand gigabytes. My, so, so what's five terabytes? Is that how many gigabytes? Is that 5,000 gigabytes? 5,000, yeah. So um, my final film is like eight gigabytes. So 5,000 gigabytes shot, the final thing is eight. Um, now, obviously, there's compressions and things that go into that, but I think it is indicative of the amount that gets filmed that's not in it. And there's certain things that I didn't get to do. Like, I got to film um, full concerts, for example, and have all this concert footage. And, you know, there, a lot of that is excellent, I think, and that would have been cool to just have, like, a cinema verite style three minutes in a go-go club with no words, no nothing. Um, that, that I didn't get to do here. Um, then sometimes like I would kind of write out what I wanted to do and somebody would be like, like, cause I try to give footage to people that I shot that could be useful to them. So like, let's say somebody organized a rally or somebody performed at a rally and they want some shots. So I would have written out a sketch that didn't include something. And someone would say, Hey, Sam, can you send me something from that day? And I would look up that day and I'd be like, God, this is really good. This has to go in, you know? And, you know, the sad thing is there's a lot of it I didn't even review. So I would write it out with a pen and paper, like what, what the scenes were going to be. And certain days that I shot just weren't even, weren't even reviewed. And then I'll review them like one I did the other day I looked at. And there's just really cool stuff there. But the thing is, what you're trying to do is form a steady flow. And I hesitate to call it a narrative because then people, it makes it sound like there's an agenda. So I don't mean a narrative in terms of creating a narrative that I want people to believe. I mean a narrative in terms of why are the shots organized in this way. So there might be some really cool footage that doesn't fit into that organization. And that's why it gets left out. And, um, you know, and it's also, who are you, who is this for? Um, in the end, it'll probably, we want it to be really powerful in Washington, but we know a lot of people who aren't in Washington are gonna watch it. So certain shots that would be really special for a Washington only community won't have that resonance 
you know, that's one of the really challenges with making a documentary like this. And in all the documentaries, you know, your goal is to make it so people from that area enjoy it and see themselves in it and feel like they're seeing something accurate and new. But then that also somebody that is like coming from the other side of the world can watch it and understand it as well. So that's also something, you know, we try to do with these and that that goes into what gets included and what doesn't. So in the case of Washington, that means, you know, we don't go into a whole lot of discussion of this mayor did this and then this other mayor came in and did that, you know, it's much more broader above above the fray in terms of the historic discussion of Washington. So like you said, your um, documentaries sort of occupy this really unique space of being like, it seems to be a common theme in a lot of your documentaries that you're sort of like an outsider to the communities whose stories um, want to be told. So like Mexico, Turkey, India, mm -hmm. and um, as a Philadelphia native, like in this case, DC. So what are some difficulties that you had um, interviewing people from different parts of the world? Like, did, did you ever, ever have conflicts with um, people as you recorded them or did they, were they always really engaged um, in like in, in, in the interview? That's a, I mean, that's a great question. And it's something that, you know, um, as a filmmaker in these settings, you try to be as absolutely respectful as possible. And there's always people that are not going to want to be on camera. And that's absolutely 100% their right. And, you know, somebody, you know, so there's no interviews that aren't done without consent. But there's also the situation of B-roll that if I go out to shoot B-roll, you know, that's just people walking around and you can't stop and ask everybody, is it okay to take this picture? And if somebody makes it clear that they don't want to be in a picture, then, uh, you know, I, I respect that immediately and that person won't be included. The, the idea of, you know, being an outsider to a community and working there, you know, I've definitely encountered initial, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like suspicion, because I think that's a little too harsh. But I think that all over the world, people know that there's stereotypes about them everywhere. And they don't like when those stereotypes are reinforced by, by media, by film. And even not even stereotypes, they just don't like being misrepresented. You know, if somebody comes with a, with a camera and puts it in your face, you don't know what they're going to do with it later. And that's scary at first. And I think it's really incumbent on a documentary filmmaker that tries to do what I try to do. And this is what I try to do, is to be as honest and direct about what you're trying to do and try to make it clear that you're not there to make them look bad. You're there to give them a chance to represent themselves. And what I've almost universally found is that once people see that you're not there, once they have an understanding of what you're trying to do, and a, hopefully a trust, which is what you're trying to build towards, people really want to tell their story. They really want to tell their story. And it doesn't matter if it's an insider or an outsider, sometimes even more to an outsider. People want to share, you know, I think people are inherently good even, and they want they want you to believe they want you to see their experience from them, and actually like the a common experience to me that was best experienced with um, so one of the documentaries I've done and it's online is the People's Choice 
Mexico, Morena in the 2018 election. We follow a local candidate for like city council or, or city or, or state government, I forget specifically, state senator, Oton Cuevas. And he's in this rural area. And when I first met him, you know, he wasn't sure if he wanted to do the interview, let alone let me follow him around because he didn't know me and he didn't know what I was going to try to do with it. But as time passed, he got more and more into it. And it got to the point where like he would be driving up, he would know where I was staying in Oaxaca and he would drive up and they'd just start honking, Sam, come on, come out, we're going, we'll get your camera, you know? And and that that is not uncommon that people aren't like, I, I don't, you know, I don't know if I want to do this. And then later on, they're like, hey, where were you the other day? We had a big event. Why didn't you come and film it? And um, I think that, so that's awesome. And that's a beautiful thing. But that's also sometimes where I feel the most stress is I really want to do justice by these people. I want them to feel like that trust was well-placed. Um, and that's not to say I want to make people look like heroes, you know, which is sometimes the other thing, like you're concerned if, if, if they think that I'm going to somehow make them look like the greatest political figure ever, I'm not going to do that. But I, I really want them to feel like that trust was well-placed and that what I've made is honest. That means a lot to me. And I've been lucky so far that I've, you know, really got almost universally positive response from everybody I've got that I've covered. And that makes me feel better when I go out and share it with the world that I'm not misrepresenting a community because I know the people in it are like, yeah, you pretty much got me. That was us. Um, extremely important though, uh, because once you, because it's all based on trust, I think is the answer to your question. And then when you deliver a final product, you don't want to be guilty of violating that trust. And that's scary. I mean, that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. So it's like, I always say the most important things that people, opinions of my film are from my boss and from the people that are in it, you know? And if they're okay with it, then hopefully we're in a good place. That's good. Yeah, uh, since we're talking about you capturing um, people and their stories, do sometimes, do these stories maybe conflict with one another? Because I know people are a really interesting bunch. And a lot of times you have dissenters within communities themselves, a lot of fractures within the community. Have you ever been like, of course, we're talking about the Gogo City documentary, but you can branch off if you'd like. Are there any times where you're just, where you're talking to a community and sometimes you hear like splitting opinions on whatever it is you're covering? And how do you deal with those things if you cover, if you deal with it at all? Hmm, that's a very interesting question. You know, and I think there's that's definitely something you can explore. Like I would have no problem at having people say the two sides, you know, I think that that's sometimes very important. Um, and then it's just a matter of what is that narrative that you're putting together? Does that rise? Like, let's say there's two politicians of the same, or, or let's say there's two grassroots organizations in Colombia that have the same goal and you're talking about that goal. And those two grassroots organizations, both are trying the same thing and are both pretty effective, but they don't like each other because they each one thinks that they're the real NGO. That's something that I don't feel like I would necessarily need to cover in the story, you know, like, at, 
that so that's the thing that I would just it just depends if it rises to a level that I think needs to be okay. addressed, I would say. So like you're basically saying like if you see like I don't know, you have 99 people you talk to, they're all saying the same thing, and then you have this one dude who says something else, you're like, okay, we can he's yeah, not you know, that's, he's not representative of what I'm covering. That's a really that, good point because like that is so fundamental to documentary films. Who gets the airtime? Because, and it's a perfect example in the protest. Let's say you have 99 protesters who are peacefully protesting um, and one person that's not. I think what the news would do is show the one person that's not. I felt like that, I, what I generally try to do is honestly depict a situation the best I can. So it would not be to focus on that one person who's not, you know, or if, or if you go to a rally, you know, it's, yeah, it's a really tough question, but you, you want to be honest about what people are saying. And usually there's a general consensus. Like, for example, I did um, a Matteo Salvini rally in Italy. Matteo Salvini is the right wing, uh, you know, neo-fascist kind of Italian central political figure. Mm -hmm. And it was featured in our 2018 documentary, Disrupting Democracy, also online. All our stuff's online, by the way. If you're, if you're interested in this, you should check it out. We're a nonprofit organization. Our stuff is, is all on the internet and easy to find and, and totally free. Um, but you did interviews there and almost everybody who was there was in their interviews saying racist and offensive things. So in that case, I had no problem showing clips of them saying racist and offensive yeah. things because I didn't feel like I was picking the one guy that was popping off at the mouth. You know, they were all saying it. So it was like, okay, we can, we're going to go ahead and include this because that is the general vibe that is accurately representing the kind of things that people are saying at this rally. But yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, mm -hmm. if, if, if if I'm at like, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a tough question. It's a tough yeah. question. Uh, the reason why I, I'm asking this sort of thing is because, um, so I'm in the history department and one of the things I can use as primary source information is documentaries. And a lot of some of the questions I have to ask is, okay, documentary is saying something, whether we, whether he says he's not, or is like it, like yeah. it, there's something being communicated like Facts. there's a so yes. there's something being told like like documentary documentaries at least among my friends have like a little bit more clout like they have like okay this isn't just a YouTube video like this is like professionally done yeah. this is well made so they give it like a like a, a aura of objectivity to it and I always try to remind them like look yeah a lot of them do have that objectivity but they are also subject to the same problems that you can find in other sources of biased media absolutely. Um, so uh, I'm like kind of primed to kind of see if like, okay, what angle is this guy trying to get me at? Yeah. What does this person want me to do? Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's, that's it's fundamental to documentary making. So I just felt the need to, to ask. No, it's, it's, it's completely yeah. true. It's completely true. And it's something a, a, a editor I frequently work with that has a lot of it is just an extremely talented dude is like, look, nothing is unbiased. Everything is a decision. Everything, what goes in, what doesn't go in, it's all there, you know, and what you get is just different levels of nuance. 
I mean, and I think that I'd like to say people know when they're being manipulated, but I think a problem with our society today is a lot of people look for content that explicitly agrees with what their vision of the world is. And that's why our, our media has become so divided. People go to one side just to have confirmation bias and the other side to have their confirmation bias. And it's like they don't realize that they're being manipulated. Um, and that power of manipulation can be extremely strong with video. So I think that's something that you have to be very careful with. So there is an argument in my films. You know, there definitely are arguments, but what I try to do is not jam it in your face. And I, I try not to, 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 to use tricks of the eye or misquotes or just, or just lacking context. In fact, I, what I try to do is give an overabundance of context. And then the goal is that somebody, rather than saying, this is what you think, that somebody watches it and slowly comes to the conclusion on their own that may not even be the exact conclusion that I got to, but is based on what, you know, the visual information I'm giving. Um, but yeah, I mean, all everything is a choice. And so everything is done for a reason. And if everything is done for a reason, then that reason is, is some sort of message that you're trying to convey. And I guess what would hopefully, what I'm trying to do is let you come to the conclusion you want to come to rather than just hitting you over the head with with like an agenda like i don't have an agenda really so yeah when i was when i was one of the things i appreciated about your documentaries is that i very much felt like you were just listening mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things that i really enjoyed about it like i didn't feel like i was getting like there wasn't a narrator telling me and framing everything that was going on um it was very much just the people's stories uh, being highlighted and being shown. Um, so there was one thing that I, I did notice about the documentary that, uh, of course, like I, I can already take a guess as to what the answer is to it, but just to get interesting to get your take on it. I did notice that in the documentary, you didn't interview any of like these newcomers to DC. I know you're one yourself, um, but is there like, did you do any, I know your focus was on, on GoGo, so it wouldn't particularly uh, make too much sense to put it in there let's per se yeah. um but i am interested if you did interact with any of these newcomers when you're doing this production like this production process like maybe explore like again maybe we're going beyond the documentary at this point uh this is just more about my own interest in saying like what was happening like outside of what you covered because i know you mentioned you can't put everything in there um did you record some interactions, let's say, between the, the gentrified community and the African-American community? Because um, like, is there is there some recordings of that taking place? Um, and did you interact or record anyone from the gentrified community and what they thought of per se go-go? Like, was there uh, like some interaction there, some recording where you got their, their take on what was happening? I think that that is, again, a very good question. And it, it was definitely an idea I had in my mind, in my mind's eye when I first did this, was to have something from the gentrifying perspective as well, to take a little trip into their world. You know, and I still think that that would be an, a really good source of material. And I think that that's the kind of thing that when I started this film, it was really gonna be about the, the gentrification and then production shut down. And then when it picked back up, it was clear that the protest movement for Black Lives was gonna be an integral part of this film. 
And then it just kind of went in that direction and we got away from the ability to include. And what the documentary does have, and it, it's, it doesn't complete what you're suggesting, which would have been very cool, but it sometimes does have these really brief interludes, these images for in the gentrifying community, like um, somebody uh, walking their dog you know, a lot of dogs, a lot of people like doing calisthenics outside, like just completely taking over public areas. And so sometimes it's just, or restaurants, very fancy restaurants or these uh, exotic luxury buildings that hopefully are giving you these brief glimpse, but it doesn't really take you into their world. It doesn't give you their side of the story. And I think that's a fair point about this documentary. I think that would be cool because I don't think that the quote unquote gentrifiers are necessarily bad people. You know, they, they got a job offer. They came to the city. They haven't really done a good job of understanding the city, but they're probably, you know, the, the, the thing is this is the dichotomy in the American economy where you have certain people in certain sectors that have these really high pressure, intense jobs. And of course, in Washington, they think they're the center of the world and all that matters is their job. And that's all they're focused on. And they don't have time for this go-go or you know, this fish shop. Um, I think that that would have been a, a very rich direction to go in to include that as well. I really do. I think that's a fair feed point of feedback and the film does not have that. In terms of brief interactions, there's no, I didn't get a lot of that, you know, there were some brief moments that were very interesting, like between, like I told you, we walked through Berry Farms um, and there were these people doing construction and some of the people doing construction were these salty old white guys. And by side, just, I'm not saying they were bad people. I just mean, they're kind of mannerisms of like 60 year old construction guys, you know, you can imagine with like the pack of cigarette falling out of his pocket. Um, and there was a really interesting conversation where he's like, you know, this place had become unlivable. It's going to be so much better once we put up this supermarket. And the woman I was with was like, yeah, but who's going to own that supermarket? It's not going to be anybody from our community. And um, it was interesting to watch. You know, I don't think I filmed it at the level that would be needed to get that kind of thing in the documentary. There were other things I, so for example, one thing I did was interview a developer mm. and the guy said all the quotes that you would need to really make him look like a jerk you know <laughs> saying like and, and uh what i did and he would have been the one you know white person in the film and it would have really set him up as the bad guy and i didn't think that was fair to him you know i just didn't think that was the direction that this was going so I always thought it was important to have a developer. And there is a side of the story. You know, the side of his story is, look, this place was completely destroyed and we came in and we made it beautiful and now it's worth a lot of money. And, um, you know, I think that what happened in Washington is terrible because this is what happened. And this is the fundamental, you know, the great thing about documentaries, you can point out the problems without having to solve them. The <laughs> fundamental problem here is how do you take how do you take a, a, a neighborhood that has been underinvested in for decades, a neighborhood that's really in a tough place and improve it and make it strong again, but in such a way that the people that lived there when it was in bad shape can continue to be there and benefit from those improvements. And that's the ball that Washington has missed 100%. The people that lived here in the tough times 
are not currently able to benefit from the good times. And that goes for homeowners too, even homeowners that own their home outright. You know, the, the, the taxes go up so precipitously, so quickly here that they can no longer afford to live in the house they own. So they have to sell out. And yeah, they probably get a nice sum of money, but it's not ultimately, you know, what that's gonna be worth if you were to hold it for another 50 years. Um, so I always knew it was gonna be important to a developer, but because of the way the project went, I just didn't feel comfortable piling on this guy. You know, it didn't, it, I don't think it really adds, it added to the story. So I didn't put it in, but yeah, I think that it's a fair, it's a fair feedback that it would be interesting to see more from the developer side and also from the people moving in. Yeah. Cause it was, that was one of the thoughts that I was having as I was watching the documentary, I was like, yeah, this, this community is very much pushing them away, but I wonder like if they think that's what they're doing. Like, are right. they even aware of what they're doing? Like, one thing that like really like made them look really bad is when they they had the, I forget his name, but the guy who I believe was in charge of the Metro PCS, I think, or one of the yes, yes. yeah, he Don had Campbell his Blair, yeah, and the the neighborhood was like, that's noise, please shut right. that off, right? And like, I wonder if they were like aware of just how significant that was for them. Like, if they maybe if they had a conversation, they would I don't know, like what 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 forces right. are going on there. Because um, very much painting them as an enemy at that point. Like, they were really bad at that point. So it would have been, like, maybe, again, it didn't fit necessarily with, with the flow of the documentary. So I'm not holding this against you. But um, I did, I, that was one of my thoughts that I was having. I was like, wow, like, I wonder if they know just how significant it is what they're doing here. Like, to them, it's just like, oh, it's just a stereo. Like, you can just shut it off. It's not a big deal. But for them, that was their one vestige of go-go that wasn't, that wasn't encroached upon. And when that was encroached, it was like... That's horrible. That's terrible. Um, so yeah, that was really interesting. I just wanted. Yeah, I think that, that you highlight. I mean, and that was a major story here in Washington, and, and some people out there may not know that story. So if I can, maybe I just summarize yeah. that quickly. So because um, it, it, and it's it's an important part of our story because it really shows where GoGo starts to get this political power, and the story is this: there is a a little Metro PCS, which is to say a cell phone shop in Shaw, which is very close to Howard University. This was the traditional Black Broadway, the heart of, one of the hearts of Chocolate City. Um, and with this guy, Don Campbell, who's also a major Go-Go fan, he would sell CDs of Go-Go out of the back of his shop and he had these big speakers and he would just blast Go-Go music from those speakers every day. And it's sort of a busy intersection. And the thing about it, what made it unique is he's been doing this for decades. 30 years he's been playing that music in front of the store um, and people love it you know this is the sound of the city but then the neighborhood starts changing around it bit by bit by bit and Shaw is one of the most rapidly gentrified areas of Washington DC um, and they put up a luxury condo building across the street and then those people started complaining about the music and Metro PCS initially made Don turn off his music and people got furious. I mean, there's these quotes in the movie where like one of the legends of Go-Go, Big Tony says, you can take a lot of stuff away from us, but you can't take the Go-Go. And it was sort of like they hit a last, last lot, like a last, that was the last straw. Like they took the housing, the small businesses, but, 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 but then they tried to take the, 
the go-go and they were like, hell no, that's, that's not acceptable. And it really brought people out into the street and there were these massive protests, again, led by go-go bands. So a go-go band would perform and you know, thousands and thousands of people would take the streets. And that was the first point of go-go as a, as a, or one of, one of the first major points, you have to be careful, one of the first major points of go-go as overtly politically used to make a statement and to stand up against this gentrification. And in the end, they turned the music back on. The music won. And you're right, the people in those luxury apartments, they don't look good, you know, in that situation because, but it is really, really complicated, you know, because for example, I am a guy that likes music when I like music, but I really don't like external sound. And I could totally understand being like, if, I, if I'm in, like I live in a row home and if I hear the TV upstairs, I'm pissed. You know, like I want quiet around me. So yeah. in a sense, you know, I can relate to these people that didn't want the go-go music blasting, but their problem was they were completely lacking context. They moved into this area without understanding what they were moving into. It wasn't a surprise that Don Campbell was playing go-go music at the corner of 7th and Florida. He's been doing it for 35 years. That's the problem. That's the lack of context that people coming into the city, they don't realize what that is. They just come into these neighborhoods and don't take the time to learn of what's around them and then try to bend it. And even if it's understood, like I said, it probably was annoying to them. They probably don't like go-go, you know, the people working for, you know, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan, you know, and living in, and they don't want to hear the go-go music, you know, but, but they shouldn't have moved there then, you know? That was that was the issue that they have to understand the context, and so I th I do think that that they look they look bad you know in that situation. But it was such a powerful point in the, in the film because it was this realization that not only was Gogo -Go the last straw, but that actually Gogo -Go could be used for like a counterattack, and I don't mean a physical attack. I mean a yeah, counterattack yeah. against gentrification to push back against that. So I'm glad you brought that story up. Yeah, there's like. Uh sticking on this theme about developers coming in and ignoring context. I think it was really interesting to me. Like one of the highlights to me was the fact that somewhere in the documentary, it's mentioned that a lot of these developers that are bringing in new, new properties in here are naming the buildings on historical figures and events like of Washington DC while at the same time being insensitive to the right. culture. So it's like this weird pandering thing, like just ostensibly appreciating the culture while not really taking it it's all of its parts just what it does like just parts of the culture that are not consequential like names of buildings like great that's fantastic um but yeah like again like one of probably the most powerful line to me reading uh, not reading watching the documentary was a line said by uh, a small business owner from i think it was dickie from the yes um uh, yes, hot dog exactly place. who it was yeah he he said i believe they call it gentrification I call it cultural genocide. That is extremely powerful language to use. And I thought it captured pretty well just how powerful um, this, this the shift is in his mind, like how significant it is. Like it was a very, just seeing the people, I, again, I've, I've had little restaurants close around me that didn't even hold cultural significance to me. I just wanted to eat there, man. <laughs> and, and even then, even then I was saddened that they were gonna shut down or leave. And of course, this is something that's going on right now from the pandemic all the time because all these places are shutting down 
And from what it seems to me from the documentary, um, it also had cultural um, implications as well. Like these restaurants were also embedded in their culture. Like they grew up with it. And I believe one of the, one of the people you interviewed said like, this is our culture's food and yeah. you're going to replace it with like a Starbucks or a, yeah. some, from some, some imported place. So I, that was just like the most important line. I, I just want to see if like, what was your reaction to it when you got, like, when you captured that? Like, I wonder if you felt like, oh, this is gold. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, this is powerful. This is powerful. Definitely. <laughs> absolutely. There's certain specific lines that make you double check to make sure you're recording everything properly. <laughs> you know, that yeah. make you, that make you pause and look at the camera and make sure record is on. And that was, that was a stunning moment. I mean, in the context of it as well, um, because that was his last day after all those years there. And he gave such a fascinating interview. And um, it's just a funny thing, you know, I set up a really shallow depth of focus for that, which means it's very easy for the person to come out of focus. And I film by myself and, you know, sometimes I don't necessarily always see an interview in progress. And in that interview, he was frequently leaning forward, which put a lot of the interview out of focus. But that line, he was leaning back and we got him 100%. And actually, you know, um, I say I film alone whenever I can. Um, I, I get my partner to come along, my girlfriend to come and, and join and help me move the tripod. It's, it's just too much to carry. And, you know, we have the budgeting. We don't have any kind of assistance. So and she happened to be with me that day. And I definitely remember we kind of looked at each other and was like, whoa. And um, that was, you know, there's moments that happen that you know, and that happened in February. And we just finished this documentary a couple of weeks ago. You knew that was going in the film. And uh, I'm just so happy, I'm happy it, that, that that whole scene is such a powerful scene for me. And, I found out about it the last minute. You know, I can say I knew Gogo for years, but I'd be lying if I said that I knew Horace and Dickies. I found out Horace and Dickies was closing. And, and that's when I started, you know, the final days is when I got on that story. So it was just luck. You know, there's so much luck in this stuff. I called Dickie on the phone. I just called Dickies because like, I read the story in the newspaper, this historic place is closing. I looked up the phone number, I called and he answered. And I told him I wanted to come film and he said, come on down. As I was filming, he kept receiving calls and most of the time nobody answered, you know? So what made him answer? I thought when I called, it was just dumb luck, you know? And, and, and that's the kind of thing that I'm proud of this film for because even if it's not the most artistic thing in the world, even if it's not the most comprehensive thing in the world, we got footage of the final days of Horace and Dickies. And that means a lot to a lot of people. I put that clip on Twitter and it got like 50,000 views on Twitter, which is the most, it's the biggest number I've ever done on Twitter, almost by double. And it wasn't like policymakers and stuff. It was all local Washingtonians that were like, I. I'm gonna miss this place so much, I love this place. And that is awesome because that is bringing people into conversations that you know we as a policy institution are trying to, you know, so many of these DC think tanks or whatever do a really terrible job of engaging communities outside of DC think tanks. And 
um, I'm really proud we got that footage because that's just something that we now have of Horace and Dickies, which is no longer on H Street. Yeah. Yeah, it was very powerful just to see a lot of these community members, their faces, like saying, like, where are we going to get our fish from now? Like, yeah. what? What's going on? And they're all like, that's too far. Like, basically, them telling them where the new place is, is like telling them, yeah, you're done. Like, there's yeah. no more. Right. And things like, like that, it's also like, sometimes people say things that are so perfect. That you, it's like you scripted it. I couldn't have scripted better interactions than those people saying, you know, how am I going to get out there? when talking about the news because because dickies horse and dickies moved to the suburbs like yeah. an hour outside the city and you have these old-time customers saying hey, how how am i going to get a bus out there um a cool scene so like since we're on the topic of interacting with um a lot of these locals in um like in your documentary i was just wondering how has like sort of your conversations with these people um, like how has creating these documents shaped the way you now view the issues that you are tackling like in these films? Yeah, that feel is- free and, Yeah, and feel free to talk about your other documentaries too. Like we only oh, have time sure. to cover this one, but uh, feel free to cover, cover all that you've done. Mm -hmm. This was, see, it's, it's an interesting question because this is the first one I've made about where I live. You know, these other places I go and I make the film and, and then I come home even the ones that I work on for a long period of time, like Swing State, Florida. Um, this was where I live, you know? And it also just meant so much, it meant more to me because I loved that music so much, you know? So there was this double importance and it's completely changed the way I see Washington, DC. I mean, I know so much more about it. And also so many places in it are in the film that I now pass every day. It's almost like seeing ghosts. So my favorite shot of the film is this long shot. It's an eight minute shot, but only about maybe 15 seconds end up in the documentary. But in one of these go-go marches, um, the band goes under one of these tunnels that is close to downtown Washington. You just to get what basically what Washington has a certain you go underneath circular roundabouts so you don't have to go all the way around. And the band went under one of these small tunnels and just thousands of people packed in that tunnel as the, as the bus was moving. And then it emerges from the tunnel to this triumphant entry and people are just going crazy. And um, I walk by that tunnel every day and it's like, you see those ghosts, you look at these places and you, you remember what it was like. Um, and so that, that's a unique experience to me to film so intimately where I live. And I feel like I have a much better understanding of Washington now. The city means something completely different to me than it did before. And I'm really glad, I'm thankful for the chance to make the documentary because I got to learn so much about where I live, which like I say, people are, are very, very ignorant of where they live in Washington, DC. Yeah. Yeah, I guess like just a couple more questions because I know we're Yeah, this is fun. It's a really, really good questions, by the way. You guys, uh, this is good fun. Thank you, appreciate it. We appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I guess like sticking on to this, this local uh, theme, like I'm thinking particularly about your Mexico documentary on, on trade, like the, on the Crossroads series. Right. Um, I'm just curious, like you interview these people and sometimes they get really, really personal. And like, I'm thinking of this one woman who you asked if there's anything else they wanted to say, and then they just started breaking down. Oof. Like that Wasn't was an that extremely, something? 
yeah, that was an extremely powerful part of the documentary. Like she just broke down and you could see the hopelessness that she had and just like wanting something to grasp for, just right. pleading. Like she took, she took your camera as like a plea to other people to come in and help. So I was just, I was just curious, like, first off, how do you, how do you say goodbye <laughs> to people like that? Cause like maybe like in their head, they're thinking, oh, this is an American. Like they'll, they'll be able to produce change. Like there is something that they'll be able to do here. Mm -hmm. Like what's, what's the dynamic there? I know you have to deal with this cause you have to deal with, uh, you interview people who are not in the best situation and they want to get their voice heard. They want to get their message out mm -hmm. there and implicit in getting their message out there. They want things to change. Yes. So like, how, like, do you still keep your relationship up with these people that you interview like internationally? Like what, basically like, what are the relationships there? And, and I, I guess what are the dynamics that they expect out of the interview? Just like, that, like, especially when we're dealing with heavy topics, like things that when they get really personal and they start crying on camera, like just these sort of things. I was just curious what the relationship dynamics are there. That is an excellent question. And I don't think anybody's asked me that question. So thank you for that. And so the scene you're talking about, and it's just a, a while, it was, that was an important documentary for me uh, that is called The Crossroads uh, US-Mexico Trade. Um, I believe from 2017, it was, you know, filmed in the weeks after Trump was elected. Yeah. And, um, and that was a big step forward for me. I think that was the first, I mean, you can look at Crossroads Turkey as sort of a documentary, but even so, even at that point, that's still very much almost like a news program where you have interviews yeah. and you're mixing together interviews. That Crossroads US-Mexico was an important one for me really going more full-fledged documentary film. So, um, and that specific scene that you're talking about, we filmed it in nighttime, way out in this like rough part of Juarez, uh, out you know where where city starts to break up. Like it's not necessarily um, paved streets anymore. It's more kind of like unpaved streets. And we're in this woman's house, and you know. Um, I'm interviewing her and the answers aren't that great, but I can tell she's got something that she wants to say. You know, I can tell there's something weighing on her and I'm just not getting it out. I could see it in her face that she had something to say. And it was just, how do you loosen that? How do you, how do you get that to come out? And, you know, in that sense, it was like you said, it was, a, it's just, it, it was just a matter of realizing that that was the situation and just saying, look, is there something else that you want to tell us right now? And that's all it took. And then she just opened up. And what made that important was not only was she crying, but what she was saying was really interesting. She was really saying something important because you, you have to be careful. You don't, you definitely don't want to emotionally manipulate your, the person you're interviewing and you don't want to emotionally manipulate your audience. That's not the goal, you know. The goal is not to make somebody cry. You know, you don't sit there and say, "Will you now tell us the saddest moment of your life in detail?" You know, just because you'll probably start crying. And yeah. and a lot of times you don't end up using that kind of footage. But if it fits, it can be extremely powerful. And that woman was getting something off her chest and that was that was, that's why I do this for moments like that. That's the most beautiful thing. And, um, and you asked a series of additional important follow-up questions that, yeah, I mean, I think that there, I hope you don't give the impression that I can change things for you. 
Yeah. But maybe they do have that impression. And um, I think that comes back to being as honest as, as you are about what you do. I work for a nonprofit. You know, I make these documentaries. We can get this message out. You know, I don't, I don't, I doubt that I will ever be in a position to have a career opportunity for you. Um, I will say this, you create these intimate bonds very quickly with people because especially with the kind of films that I've been doing where you're not asking what will be the impact of GDP in Guatemala. You know, I'm asking what is it like to live this experience? And that forces you to very quickly become intimate with these people. And I don't know if it's a friendship, but it's, it's, it's something more than a professional contact because it's, because it's not just talking about intimate life issues. It's also talking about, um, it's also talking about that trust that I mentioned before, that sort of mutual trust that's so important. So you're trusting each other. You're really building a relationship. And especially these documentaries I've been doing over the last couple of years where you go back again and again. So I'm not even just saying, can I come in your house once or can I come to your place of work once? I'm saying, can I come a couple of times over the next months? And then you, so you have that other element of relationship building where you're just working on logistics. Okay, I'll meet you at seven o'clock at this place. And then you're both kind of trusting that the other will be there and then they're there. Yeah, and I'll be honest. I don't think I always do a great job of staying in touch with people. You know, I think it's something when I think, what could I do better? You know, I should stay in touch more with people. The problem is I get hooked into a new project and start moving on and creating these new things. And I think, God, man, I haven't talked to Mr. Bobby in months. And I'm starting to do a better job of that. I really am. And I think it's, and sometimes they'll call me out of nowhere, you know, and uh, that's, that's really okay. You know, I really appreciate that. And I think that I would like them to know that if my, if their relationship to me meant something to them, that they should know that it meant something to me too. And just because, you know, I don't speak to people, it didn't mean that these moments weren't real. Um, so um, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. Um, so, uh, since the name of our po podcast is Policy Punchline, um, we'll, for our final question, we like we always like to ask our guest um, this question. So, what do you think is the punchline here? God, what is the punchline? Um, so that's the thing. Like I told you, I'm so bad. The doc, we point out the problems. We're not <laughs> we're not really good at the answers. I guess what I I, I think that the best way to pitch a documentary to people that aren't sure if they want to get into, you know, say funding documentaries to say, well, look, people don't read anymore. So what you have to do is make a video because people will watch video. And I think that's really underselling. I don't think I'll say that because it goes over well, that line works. People say, yeah, people don't read anymore. They watch, but I think it's not true. I mean, I think it's partially true, but I think it's underselling what the true power and potential of a documentary film is. Documentary film is not just about telling you something that you could have read, but it's easier to watch it on video. If a documentary is done well, and it's up to the viewer if what I've done is done well or not, you know, it can really put, show you something, it can show you, it can put you in somebody's perspective, even if only for a moment. 
And in a time when we're becoming so separated from each other, physically, you know, with the coronavirus, but even before that, you know, if you read these things, civil society participation has gone way down. Most of us don't know our neighbors, you know, uh, there's an empathetic potential of documentary film that I think is truly magical. Um, and, you know, I, I think that coming from a, my, my path to documentary is very odd because I didn't come from a filmmaker background. I came from a policy background and being able to take that knowledge and, and argumentation of policy, but try to show it in this artistic fashion, I think there's just tremendous potential first and foremost as a conversation starter because it provokes a reaction. And I think these are the conversations we need to have. And um, you know, I'm so appreciative of you guys. I think this was just a really, really interesting conversation. And if it leads anybody out there to check out some of my work I want you to know that I'm happy to engage with you. You know, shoot me an email. I'm happy to know what you think. I'm happy to answer more questions. It's a, uh, it's it's a pleasure. Yeah, we just want to yeah. thank you so much for uh, engaging <laughs> with us in this podcast. Um, I know that we both appreciate it. I beat Annie to it. Um, <laughs> uh, how can people, listeners, uh, learn more about you and you and your work? How can they follow you? See what you're doing? Upcoming projects that I know you're going to be working on. Yeah, so um, definitely check out the Bertelsmann Foundation. That's bfna.org. Uh, there you'll see all of our work, which uh, some of the colleagues do documentaries as well, and some of them do other things. Um, you can find a lot of my work at samueljorge-films.org. Um, it's really sort of a rinky-dink website, but what it has is links to all the documentaries, which are in full HD and, and all that. So it, it's a good way to just have a look at all of the films that are out there and you can watch them. Um, so just excuse the kind of low key nature of the website. Some of our films have websites. So swingstateflorida.com is, is, is one of them. And, and the films are actually on, Swing State Florida series is on that website, gogocity.org. That film is not online yet, but it will be soon. If anybody out there ever wants to organize a screening, we do that all the time. You know, if you're a classroom or something, we can screen the film and we actually make educational guides that go along with some of our films. Uh, in terms of upcoming screenings and all that, probably the best thing is Twitter for us, you know, the most immediate stuff. So for, so I'm Samuel George 76 on Twitter. Um, some, of the, some of the films have Twitters as well, but um, yeah, and in terms of what comes next, I, I got something kind of cool in the pipeline, you know, uh, over the course of the election, I think one of these conversations is so many Americans have been exposed to the criminal justice system. And uh, a lot of them unfairly, and even if it was fairly, I think a question we face as a society is how do we bring these people back in and make them productive part of society? And that's a question that comes up a lot in democracy in terms of regaining the right to vote. And Baltimore or Maryland actually is one of the few states that permits, I don't know if it's one of the, I don't know the statistics, one of the states that permits ex-felons the right to vote. So in the weeks leading up to and during the last election, I followed an organization in Baltimore that is based with former convicts that are now active in the democratic process, trying to get out the vote in their community and specifically with other people that had interactions with the criminal justice system, really trying to create that engagement with democracy that's so important. 
So I filmed that. It's filmed. All the film is in the bag. Absolutely no work has been done to turn it into a movie. But uh, that's my next step for me is to take uh, all this footage and try to turn it into a new documentary. So that's a good feeling to have, to know that you have this thing lined up. Um, and I think, I think the content is there for it to be a good story. But now it's just a matter of going through it slowly and meticulously putting it together. So I definitely hope to keep you posted on that, that documentary. For sure. I'll be keeping an eye out for sure. I, I really enjoyed your documentaries and I'm really looking forward to what you got. Thank you. you got next Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for being here with us today, Mr. George. Um, and thank you to our listeners. You can watch this video on YouTube, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and policypunchline.com. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.